All right, welcome again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who's wondering whether they can trust that new study they heard about in the news. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here with Chris Gill and Don Thea, both in the Department of Global Health. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange, Boston University School of Public Health's research hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning tools. Today in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, we are going to jump into a paper that looks at whether or not watching sports, hockey specifically, can lead to heart problems. In the second part of the podcast, our deep dive segment, we're going to talk about the role of sample size in judging whether or not we believe a study's results. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusing, we'll try to crack each other up or Chris will tell us something about bats or platypuses or some fungi. Some critter. Who knows? By the way, my, my spell checker, says that platypuses is the plural. I checked it out. That is correct. According to, okay. That is correct. Uh, and then just a reminder, we are available now on iTunes and all your major podcast sites. Search for Free Associations Podcast, not just Free Associations. And also, we, uh, we'd strongly encourage you to rate us on your podcast app. Uh, it really helps people find us, and then it won't just be me can rating I, can us. Can I make the obvious point? That, you that, always that do. If, they, if they're listening to it, they have already found it. Yeah, well. So they don't need to be told. Well, tell all your friends. <laughs> all right. There you go. So once again, Chris points out the obvious. Sorry. All right. All right. So in segment one, we're going to jump right into it. We are looking at a study that seems to suggest that watching hockey can increase your heart rate, possibly enough to lead to negative heart outcomes. The article was published in the, wait for it here, Canadian Journal of Cardiology, not the Canadian Journal of Hockey Cardiology, which is another one. And the lead author is uh, Leah T. Carey. And it's titled Heart Rate Response in Spectators of the Montreal Canadiens Hockey Team. Uh, I do want to point out that this study was done by looking at watch, looking at uh, people who are watching the Montreal Canadiens. So as a Boston Bruins fan, I'm already biased, biased. against it. Uh, and let me give you some of the headlines because the reason we're taking this one on is because it got a lot of press. So first one's uh, Science Daily says, how much can watching hockey stress your heart? Time magazine says, is watching sports bad for your health? Here's what new research says. Uh, the New York Daily News, always to be trusted, says, watching hockey could double your heart rate, but it won't replace your workout. And MSN says, just watching heart rate, watching hockey raises your heart rate. A study. And my favorite CTV News, heart-stopping NHL hockey, a health <laughs> risk for cardiac like patients. Heart-stopping. Wow. Yeah. Lot to go, that lot, would be a cardiac risk. A lot to chew on here. Uh, so, Don, can you start us off? I missed that part of the paper. Yeah, I know. You, Don, you're going to start us off by sure. telling us. I have to admit, I feel a little bit with this study like we're having our, our dessert for dinner here. <laughs> this feels to me like uh, we're, we're getting into the amazing the wacky music. science immediately. But, uh, but, but, but break it down for us. And in particular, explain to us whether this is, in fact, one of your ignoble studies or this is a real study. No, this is a real study. This is a real study published in a real journal. And I'm sure it's a study that is close to the hearts of, hearts. of many Canadians because it's about hockey. and it hearts? In the introduction, they give us um, some background information on how important hockey is Obviously. in Canada. Um, I didn't realize that um, on May 12th, 1994, ice hockey was recognized and declared by law to be Canada's international um, national winter sport well, and were, that there are 2,500 hockey rinks in Canada. You were just in ignorant Canada. if you didn't know that. 
And in any event, um, the, I, the, the stated reason for why these authors um, decided to do this study was that there has been an observation in the past that during times of very fraught um, uh, um, sports competitions, the number of heart events, heart attacks has, has, have, have gone up. And so it's not a crazy notion that, in fact, excitement is associated with a, uh, um, a sporting event um, could be associated with um, untoward uh, cardiac events. So what they did was that they um, did a study where they uh, asked the question, is the heart rate increased among um, fans of the uh, um, Canadian, um, was it Montreal Canadiens. Who are uh, in last place right now, I believe. I have no idea. I don't follow La- well, Last place, I believe. But what they did is they, um, Sorry, Laura they, they identified 20 individuals yep. who were- 20, uh, huge study. 18 years uh, of age or older. Um, and they um, divided them up into two groups. One group would watch a hockey game, the Montreal Canadiens, um, live at the stadium. And the other group um, watched it uh, in front of television, and they were put, the Holter monitors were put on each of the each each all of the uh, the individuals, and they basically just measured the heart rate as they were watching the game. And the long and the short of it is that the heart rate was elevated in all of the participants, yep. and the heart rate was elevated more in the participants who were watching <laughs> watching the Shocker. hockey game live. I mean, is that not something that you would think is completely self-evident? I, the one thing that they didn't do, they didn't... They having didn't, been to a hockey game, I could say yes. You would think so, yep. you know. Um, the one thing that they didn't do is they didn't say whether they were watching the same game. So right. it's entirely oh. possible that the game that the people at home were watching were duds of games. Oh. As opposed to the one at the stadium, they probably were all sitting together watching the same game and might have been a really exciting game. Oh, plus, you could have been on the kiss cam. You could have had the, the T-shirt cannon being shot at you. Yeah. There's so much going on. Yeah, I know. mean, it's not just the Being hit the with a bag action. of peanuts or yeah. beer being poured all over you from the guy you. above you in the balcony. Oh, yeah. Well, there's also the famous chicken. The uh, Sorry, what now? The guy in the chicken suit. Okay, you're thinking of baseball oh, from sorry. the 1980s. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. The one thing about this study... You, you may, that, may not have figured out by now that Chris is not the biggest sports fan, I think. Oh, no, the, I, I love sports. Yeah. I, go I, sports. Yeah, go sports. I'm a sports The one thing that I really liked about this study was, was that when they, when they measured the heart rate for the people who were at the stadium, they equated that... Uh, heart that elevated heart rate with um, a state of vigorous exercise, which is understandable because they got up to like 30% above their resting heart rate. But they also, um, when they also measured the heart rate for the people sitting on their couch watching TV, they the heart rate was elevated to a level that was somewhat equivalent to moderate exercise. Yes. The yeah. idea of being able to sit on your couch watch sports and, and, then, get not a have to, and then not have to go to the gym. No, it's just it. as the good. The implications are staggering. This <laughs> yeah. is very profound and important yeah. research. Yeah, I, lo- I think we should I not, love this study. Let's not dig any deeper. <laughs> I love this let's study. Let's just declare victory and go home. <laughs> right. So technically going to a bar every night it's like a workout. We haven't done that study yet. But, but we that's, that's that where study. this is going. That is definitely, I mean, obviously there are implications for future studies here. Chris? Chris? Wait, there's more. Yeah, there's, there's one more, more thing. One, one of the factors that they analyzed was um, something called fan passion. 
and they oh yeah they, you gotta they, you gotta talk about the they, fan passion they they they, they normalize so the result normalized. according to fan passion and i did a fair amount of um of of work trying to find this fan passion scale wait wait so so this is like a scale to indicate how passionate you are passionate you are about the Canadian about right. sports, which to me is a reason not to talk to you. But <laughs> anyway, go ahead. But in any event, I I, I tried to find ex- um, a pr- what the scale was all about, and I couldn't find the actual scale. But there 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 has been a scale that it was developed for the um, for the soccer population. Yes, and they have they have evaluated the 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 relationship that a sports fan has to. Being a sports fan, or to, the to, their, to their team, yep. and they and they basically score it according to whether they're extremely you know passionate um, uh, sports fans or not, and they have some they have some questions that indicate that the person is a passionate fan in a beneficial way, and some oh. that are in a non-beneficial oh. way, or like a hoodlum way. Well, no, they ask the question: or like it's would, just, it, it's if, too if to your watch. team were were playing in the playoffs, would you leave work for that? Would yes. you would you not take care of your child if your child needed to be well, taken care of? I mean, I'm on a podcast. Or, I can't say that. Yeah. So so I thought that I thought that, you know, those those particular comparisons were really very interesting. But apparently in this study, yep. fan passion had no effect whatsoever on your heart rate. On your heart rate. So if you were yeah. a very passionate fan, your heart rate would go up the same as if you were a so so passionate Meh. fan. More but they're only me- measuring one domain, one domain of fan passiondom, right? I mean, it, they could. This could be a very subtle, a subtle phenomenon that could express, like in in terms of your 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 tendencies of tip over cop cars and light them on fire <laughs> right, after right, a, a victory right, right. by the Canadians they, I mean, against the I dreaded penguins. They, they really ought to assess, you know, so did, fan hooliganism is right, what they right, really should do. Right? Uh, they need a bigger sample size. Yeah. Oh well, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Chris. What's 20, your twenty? What's your take? What's Magic your take? numbers twenty. That is a very 20. small sample size. Yet, I'm I'm entirely inclined to believe that the study this is, is a tricky is one fundamentally for that reason. Uh, it's tricky. Probably correct. And they also had longitudinal data capture. Well, how could it not be correct? So yeah, it's got. It was like, how could it not be true? The the only question is like, why bother since it's so obviously true that's before the, you produce the issue. <laughs> That's the big issue. Yeah. I this, mean, this, yeah. this harkens back to like, you know, marijuana research where I, I, I saw this published study, peer review published study where they, people they, who smoke they marijuana smoked get a lot the of, they gave a bunch of people marijuana and a bunch of people who they didn't give marijuana and they had them do neuropsych tests on various cognitive, you know, function scales and the guys who smoked a lot of marijuana did poorly. I thought you were going to say they just put Doritos out and saw who ate more. <laughs> well, I, I think if they had been looking to see, like, you know, the beneficial uh, effects of marijuana include, like, you know, uh, treatment of alcohol, excuse me, of, of pizza deficiency syndrome <laughs> <laughs> or inadequate ice cream intake syndrome, <laughs> they would find it's a very effective cure. <laughs> so. And they probably <laughs> go together. Oh, good lord! You know, so anyway, I mean, it's like you know. Okay, so we have to be serious. Admit here. it. We're, we're were serious. you in that study? We could be serious. No, okay. I was not. But I, boy, what the best study ever. <laughs> yeah, I'll volunteer for that study. Best okay. study ever. Free Doritos. Um, oh man, to all participants. So, like, what are, you know? Seriously, what are the, the like? It, let's let's be let's be mature about this. Okay, us us. We're gonna Got be it. mature about this. All so right. that's gonna be tough. Hold should on. you know? Because I I, I I do think that the the, the the public health message here gets a little bit muddled. Because on the one oh, hand, we're saying. You know, people ought to exercise moderately and maybe vigorously after a while and get their heart rates up. On the other hand, we're saying that getting your heart rate moderately or significantly elevated is bad. So which is it? Is good or bad? 
Mm. Where are we going with this? Should people's heart rates go up? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. What 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 is this thing? I'm not a doctor. You're asking me. I I, you know the heart's designed to go up and down. That's that's it's you know it does that. That's it has physiology physiologic mechanisms that make it go up and down. Sure. In response to demand, right? And so what's what's the demand? So are we saying that couch potato elevations in the heart rate are bad? uh, Yet. You know, going for a vigorous, vigorous run on your treadmill—that's good. I mean, which one? Which one is it? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I personally think that heart rate elevations due to s- snow shoveling is bad. Oh, I think we yeah. avoided yeah. it. Yeah. I think there's no yeah. question about that. Yeah. One. yeah, we know there's a lot of sudden death, heart attacks, and sure. also squash. Apparently, there's squash. a lot of sudden death. Squash, squash yeah. specifically. Squash specifically. Well, squash the sport, not apparently. the not, not the racquetball. fruit. Correct. Not, not racquetball. No, no, that's no, this clear confounder. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this 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 twenty number does worry me. A little bit because it's, it's small. It's small. That's a tiny number. So, I, the, so this I, I should we should say that this is this this study is not without precedent. So there was a you mean there's a literature? There is a literature. So this was a uh, 2008 study in the New England Journal of Medicine. So as good as it gets, that looked at cardiovascular events during World Cup soccer. Right. Oh. So now we're not talking about elevated heart rate. We're talking about cardiovascular events. Massive study that they, well, not massive, actually not, I take that back. It was 4,000 odd uh, cardiovascular events that found that uh, on days of matches involving the German team, this was done in in uh, Germany, uh, involving the German team, the incidence of cardiac emergency was 2.66 times that during a control period and uh, so on and so forth. So there's, you know, there is reason to believe that sporting events and stressful events in general that elevate your heart rate can lead to heart attacks and, and other cardiovascular events, strokes, whatever. But uh, that's different from what this study found, which, let's be clear, was a small study of 20 people. Of a single effect. Of a, of a very small, of an effect that does not, isn't, isn't the same as a cardio, cardiac event. And so my worry about studies like this is, and part of the reason why I really wanted to talk about it is, my, despite the fact that I think, obviously, there's, there's credibility, there's a bit of a so what factor, but more to the point, when you do studies like this, they're cheap and easy to do, right? All you got to do is have this ability to measure heart rate and presumably be able to fork out some money to buy tickets to the Canadians game because I assume they actually bought the tickets, which bias right there. Uh, and so if it's cheap and easy to do, you could do this as a, like a little project for a grad student, just go and measure 20 people. And then every time we find nothing, we're not going to publish that because it's a study of 20 people that no one's going to care that we didn't find anything. And then you wait for that one time in, in 20 or 100 or 1,000 that you find something and say, ah, we've got to publish this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the chances of these tiny little studies finding something that is totally meaningless strikes me as pretty great. huge. It's pretty great. Pretty great. The, huge. huge. Bigly. Oh God, Bigly. No, <laughs> On the other hand, this one actually, I suppose, has some credibility to it. So it's it's uh, it's a little hard to say what it means. I don't want. I don't want to. My question is: Would this have gotten published in the an, a journal other than the Canadian? Yeah, it's a good question. Journal I, I will. Of- uh, I will ask if this study can be repeated in Pittsburgh for my my sister and brother in law and my nieces because I think they would want to know about the penguins. Uh, but there right. is no, as far as I know, there's no Pittsburgh Journal of Cardiology. You know, I think I think the first line in the conclusions tells it all. Oh, does it? About this bias. is the best. This is great. First line is: It is exciting to watch the Montreal Canadiens. So good! It's so good! <laughs> Exclamation there, point! Okay, wait a minute. So there are some other choice lines in here. There are there there are two others. So you already got the one about all the details on hockey. Um, so they there's also some weird details in here. So they say, 
All hockey games were digitally recorded on a high-definition terminal. Illico X8 from Vitteriton, <laughs> Montreal, Canada, and viewed right. to determine the timing of right. relevant events. That Do we really need to know what kind of TV it was? <laughs> And then they say the study exclusively involves spectators of one hockey team in a city with a strong fan base and emotional attachment to their team. As such, results might not be generalizable to spectators of all hockey teams. Moreover, <laughs> moreover the study was performed during regular season games and may not accurately right. reflect the intensity of heart rate responses during higher stakes postseason playoff series and championship games. Wow. Wow. So who who do the Canadians like who's their their, their arch rival? The Bruins. Why do you even is have it, to ask is it the that? Bruins? Is yes. it like the Bruins? Remember oh. this not podcast like a, is not being like the Canucks recorded or something? In Boston. Wow. Wow. wow, of course the, but the Boston Bruins are the best, so they're very exciting to watch. They really are. They are. Think so of all good. the heart attacks and through the Patriots, they are excellent. Oh, thank you for excellent. saying that, Chris. You're just Thanks. trying to butter so me up. One thing I I I, I all thought right, last like, point to Chris. You know, just like lost opportunities to really dig into this very rich data set of twenty people. Well, okay, before but, you before you even but say that, see, like since we're on on screen, you can actually see the you can see the figure yeah. with the lines going up and down, indicating the heart rate over time. It's very exciting. Well, why did they not overlay like shots on goal and goals Good. on this figure? Too, too like, does this spike here? Is that where they shot and missed, or when like there was a, a cheap shot foul and suddenly there was a fight? Well, like, what was going on to make these things? Don't you want to well, know? You, well, you'd want you also want to know whether they're watching the same game because because you know those, those two. Those two curves do, do not really track the same way. I also don't know what baseline heart rate and peak heart rate means. I, I don't get Heart rate no before the game and the heart rate during the game. I have no idea. Can they I also really just it. make the point, the last point that I want to make, which is they have included a pie chart in their paper. Yeah, And I, I am like of the opinion there is never a need for a pie chart, <laughs> ever. Oh, stop. Unless... Unless you're trying to make a hockey puck, <laughs> which is exactly, <laughs> it's it's exactly what they're I doing. That. It's uh, a hockey I love puck. It. Is I love it. Is that, that figure so, 3.14? They, it's, it's, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> All right. Moving on, guys. All right, moving I on. Have, for our next segment, I have a very appropriate study. Okay. Right. I got to do the lead in. All right. Go ahead. All right. So moving on to our second segment. So, Are we doing methodology? No. Oh. We're doing sample size. Sample yeah. size. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Geez. Methodology. The second section is always, always methodology. The second section is a deep dive, Chris. Honestly. Honestly. Ugh. Like Acapulco. Oh, boy. What? Those people who jump off the cliff. Chris, have you love. been to all these podcasts? <laughs> I think Chris, he's missing something. Go back to your Love Boat episodes. <laughs> all right. So in our second segment, we are uh, going to take up a topic that obviously comes out of this first one, which is... How big is big enough when it comes to, to studies? Um, so this study clearly had a, just a tiny sample size, 20 people. And in fact, whenever, as Don or Chris showed you, whenever you can plot all of the data in a figure in your paper, you have a small study, I would say. It's pretty, pretty likely. And yet there are also cases we can point to of very, very small studies that have you know, had very meaningful uh, results that have led us down the paths to figuring out, you know, the cause of, of HIV and, and things like that. So uh, I don't want to totally denigrate small studies, but the question is, you know, when is a small study something that we care about and when is a small study something that we just dismiss outright? And, you know, how big does a study need to be when you're reading uh, for you to be able to say, I, I think the results are, are good enough? Chris, you're going to take that one on first. Mm. Apparently he's going to wander uh, away from the mic small studies. as he does. Uh, okay, he wanders away from the topic sometimes uh, too. Small uh. studies. 
Well, how big is big enough, Chris? Um, okay, all right. I'll answer that question. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give you the ultimate waffle, which I'm which means it, it which is to say it depends. <laughs> um, so it depends on like what you are expecting to see and how extraordinary the event is in context. Give me what do you mean by extraordinary? Okay, so like um, you remember post nine eleven, um, there was this uh, unfortunate uh, news uh, news. Um, office worker in Boca Raton, Florida, mm-hmm. right? Is Boca Raton, yep. Florida? Yeah, Rat, Boca Raton, Rat's Florida. Yep. Who died of anthrax. Yep. Okay. So, um, no, I remember the initial news reports about, you know, in the in the Boston Globe, because I was I had the Globe at that time. Uh, said, we're in Boston, you know, that as we the, pointed out. The FBI, you know, saw no no hint of foul play or that this was a bioterrorism event. And I was going, thinking to myself, gee, that really? Huh. That's funny because I would have thought that would be like high on the list of of reasons why people who work in an office in Boca Raton would get anthrax. Okay, because so you wouldn't is... think that this guy, like in his daily thing of doing National Enquirer news puff pieces, which was his job, is going to do anything that in any way expose him to anthrax. And so the fact that he got anthrax is mighty suspicious. And of course, it turned out he got anthrax because he was mailed a, a you know an envelope filled with anthrax spores. And so it was bioterrorism. And so there you have your end of one in experiment where the, the event was so extreme and so unusual that even though there's no control, you have to say that cannot happen normally. And we should we should like hit all the alarm bells mm, on so that. So really rare events. So really rare events. So it, it's true that sometimes, smaller. you know, sometimes these these events are salient and profound and and, and and telling. And in fact, by definition, if it's a rare event, an extremely rare event, you're never going to have a big study. And that was, of course, part of the problem with the, you know, trying to do an Ebola vaccine study right. uh, during the Ebola outbreak is, you know, you, you, okay, in the last one, there was probably enough people. But generally, when there's an Ebola outbreak, you're talking about 50 cases, 100 cases, there's not enough to be able to- Well, to, they didn't have the vaccine until the very end of the uh, end of the epidemic. That, that, that was trying to figure a bigger out, problem. Trying to figure out causes, you know, yeah. uh, things like that, or what's what's yeah. what's the- and You already alluded to the to the, oh, the, the early me. cases of, uh, of, of HIV in, in San Francisco and New York. I did. Um, as being another example of where, you know, I, I don't remember the actual number, but it was it was a very small number of-, of uh, individuals, young male gay uh, um, men, who had died of unusual opportunistic infections, and the doctors were appropriately calling the alarm bells and saying, "This does not, this is not, this is not compute. Something is going on here. This is new. Something is going on here. We need to, we need to think about." But this. you could, you could make the argument that that's a case series, you know, and that's sort of a different animal. Than, uh, I would have been control, the, a controlled study. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we want to put um, a control arm on this, and whether when big enough is enough. I just saying, you know, when do you, you know, do you dismiss small studies outright, or are there cases where you'd say, you know, a small study uh, can give us the definitive answer? I think what you have to do is you have to you have to you do a power analysis. You have to really, in a in, in, in kind of a critical and rigorous way, go through the calculations that are necessary to tell you whether the size of your sample is sufficient to be able to to discern a meaningful difference between the two groups. Okay, so, so let me just explain this. So, so when you do a study, typically uh, you have to do something called a sample size calculation where based on what you expect to see in the study, you determine how many people you need to be in your study in order to be able to, to come up with what are referred to as statistically significant results, which aren't necessarily meaningful results, but that is the standard we go by. Uh, some people refer to these as sample size manipulations because you are essentially trying to figure out what can I really afford, right. and so I'll just make the numbers look like right. what I what I can really right. afford to do, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. you which know we all do. 
particularly in observational studies, I don't have any real problem with that. But we, so we do these calculations to try and figure out how many people would I have to be in my study given, you know, what I reasonably expect to see. And, and this is kind of our guide. But the question is, you know, if that, if that guide says you only need to do a, a study of 20 people, is, are you still you okay with it? Yeah, no, I think yeah, I, I think, think so. I think this is complicated. I mean, that that is one uh, one approach. One approach. The, the statistical approach, the frequentist approach that you're describing. Um, and, and I'm I'm not going to go like a little Bayesian here. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not no. a Bayes. Please I'm not no. a statistician, so I'm by definition not a Bayesian. I'm a big fan of Bayes, but I'm not sure the podcast audience is. Well, the the Bayes people. This is going to be very hard to say. This say that that the. The basic tenet is that the your your belief in something being true is conditional on information you have, and not just like the information you have, but how influential that information is. So uh, let me give you an example that's that's very sort of intuitive. You know, I live out in in the country, uh, the wilds of Lincoln, Massachusetts, Whoa. and I'm driving down the road, and along comes a Model T Ford. And I go, oh, cool, a Model T Ford. Yep. So there's a little piece of data. Driving along, all these cars, and there's a Model T Ford. And you don't assume that you're in 1920? And I don't assume I'm in 1920. Then five minutes later, along comes another Model T Ford. So, bing, right away, my my my, my conditional probability has shifted. Now I'm saying hypothesis. I bet there's an antique car show in town, Yeah. right? Because two Model T Ford cars driving by in five minutes is a very unusual event. Here comes a third. Now I'm certain. Where's the antique I, car fair? What about my explanation? Well, no, I You're think it's good. You're in 1920. Good. But my point is that, that, that my, <laughs> that my this, this approach where each time I, I acquire a new piece of data changes my opinion yep. radically and sometimes profoundly yep. without having any a priori hypothesis about effect size or any of this actually can be very powerful process. And you can do this in sort of real, like updated real time, you know, and then, you know, by car number four, you're like, where's the antique car chart? Yep. You know, yep. You're looking on your phone. Where is it? And of course it's there. You're right. The probability of seeing four Model T cars in 15 minutes is infinitesimally small, unless there's an antique car no, show in town. I, and then the way I typically would explain this is, you know, life is full of rare events that we don't assume have some nefarious reason for them. People get struck by lightning twice. People get, people win the lottery twice. And Golfers. We don't, for we example, golfers do, and we don't necessarily assume that the person who got hit by lightning or, or, or won the lottery twice necessarily was cheating, because we know that life is full of really rare events. It's only when you have a competing hypothesis that the data fit better under that you then change your mind to believe it. In your case, it's the, you know, that this seeing two Model T Fords is incredibly rare, and therefore there must be some other explanation for it other than I'm in 1920. Other, yeah, or that, yeah, time time portals. Yeah, I think I think the converse of that uh, of of this issue is is also interesting to talk about, in, in that sometimes studies are overpowered. Sometimes you have such a huge sample size yeah. that you are able to show a difference between the two groups that is statistically significant, but because you have so much power, the difference itself is so small that it is almost meaningless. It's clinically insignificant. So I think that, you know, you, you've, got, you've got problems on both ends. When you have massive amounts of data, you can find, you know, every, Lots of stuff everything is, is different. You know, there's always differences between right. whatever it is and whatever it is to some, some tiny degree. And if you have massive amounts of data, you're right. You're going right. to find that with statistical significance. I would say there's, a, there's an even bigger problem with, with large amounts of data, which is you can find statistically uh, you find statistical significance because you have massive amounts of data. You can find things that are meaningfully different and you can be very, very confident in it because you have that very, very lot of data, that precision, but you have bias. And mm -hmm. so if you have bias 
in with large amounts of data, you can be overly confident that right. you have found something and that eliminated is wrong. the bias. Your you, sample size has wrong. no effect on bias. bias the right. more, the more, yeah. bigger your sample size is, the smaller your what we refer to as random error. The chances that you got it wrong, you know, just due to the probabilities in life. But uh, it does nothing about the systematic error, the the right. confounding, the selection bias, the information, the mismeasurement of, of variables. And so I think I think you got to be careful. On both ends. I do agree with you, Don. And it does sort of tend to feed into this sort of assumption that, that sample size cures all problems yeah, in epidemiology. Absolutely. Which is, it cures it's a real a problem. Pitfall. That's a real pitfall. Random error, but it's not deal with systematic error. Yeah. So, yep. so I know it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, question. I don't yep. think there's a... I think, you know, what I would take is sort of the meta uh, interpretation of all of this is that no matter what the sample size, no matter what the study design, no matter, you know, randomized observation, whatever, you cannot step away from your responsibility to apply common sense. I would agree with you. I, I do. I, I agree with that completely. I wonder if though, you know, I'm, I'm going to be more trusting, not trusting, but more trusting of a bigger study than a small study. In other words, if I have a, you know, a study of 20 people, I immediately, my, my red flags go up. Uh, you know, a study of 200 people, not necessarily a study of a thousand less. So mm-hmm. 10 million, mm-hmm. again, it's, I don't taking into account all the issues about bias. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, shirk my responsibility to think about those things. But from just, you know, once I start seeing 20 people in a study, I start thinking, not mm, sure what I can yeah, do with this. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's leave it there. And we will move on to our last and presumably our favorite segment. Uh, that is our amazing and amusing segment where we want to highlight some of the things that just make our lives that much better. Um, so the weird, wacky stuff that inspires us. And Don, we know you always have the weirdest and the wackiness. So one. This you, one actually isn't so weird first. and wacky. Okay. But this is this is actually a study that has massive statistical power because it's massive. forty individuals. It's double the you, last study. How wow. did they get them all? Yeah. hundred percent bigger. hundred percent bigger. <laughs> That's right. So absolutely to be believed. But this is actually um, an appropriate study to follow on the the hockey study that we just talked about. And oh, yeah. what um, these researchers? It's Brian Wansick and Matthew Chenny. And it was a letter in, uh, I don't know where it was published. Some journal. Some um, Super Bowls. That's the name of the journal? Semicolon, serving bowl size and food consumption. So what they did <laughs> is they identified 40 individuals and they invited them to a Super Bowl party. They set up a table in the adjoining room yep. and they had um, snacks energy dense snacks on the table but it was it was put into two separate categories in one category the snacks were put in a large bowl an 8 liter bowl and the and the in the other the other side of the table the same snacks were put in several smaller bowls and as the people came into the party they were alternated to take their snacks from one side or the other. Mm. And they all put their snacks using a standardized cup and they spooned it onto a standardized small plate. They then let them sit there, watch the Super Bowl, eating their snacks. And as soon as they were finished eating their snacks, the researchers collected all the plates and they counted the number of calories consumed by those individuals by knowing how much was there ahead of time because they weighed the plates and then subtracting what was left over and determining what the caloric intake was in these two groups. And lo and behold, they found that people who pulled the snacks from the large bowl ate 30% more calories than people who pulled the snacks from the small bowl. 
And and so for your next Super Bowl party, if you are concerned about the BMI of your friends and family, put your snacks out in a bunch of tiny bowls. And so, what do you think is going on there? That that people look at a small bowl and they feel guilty about taking. It's too a, much it's food? A, it's, a, it's yeah, it's a social cue. It's a you know, it's a yeah, it's an like, environmental cue. Yeah, don't eat too much. But it was it was quite consistent. It was consistent in terms of body size and consistent in terms of gender. Not that they had a whole lot of power to analyze those things. I feel like I could redo this study though with my kids yeah. and it would have no effect. No effect whatsoever. They will eat all of the. You should try it. All of the hot dogs. You, because you they're, not, the they're not susceptible dogs. to the social cues. Too, they're then? not susceptible they to social been cues. Primed yet? Yeah. No. When it comes to those those bacon the, those uh, those those pigs in a blanket oh, things, they're so good. They eat them all. Oh yeah. So do I. I, even, I love so those things. Before I even get into the room, yeah. they're yeah. gone. Yeah. And I don't think it matters what size bowl they're in. Yeah. Pigs wow. in a blanket. Okay. Anyway, hole in the toad is nope. all good. Let's not go all UK on us. All right. Well, that one. Boiled babies. I can believe it. I can definitely believe that one. What did you just say? Boiled baby. No, don't uh, even start. Stop. That's a, it's a no, delicacy. Stop, 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 stop. Chris, what do you got for all right, us? All right, well, is I, it bat related? Is it slime related? It what, is what is it? Slime related. Slime. Slime molds. I can predict. <laughs> slime molds. So but, see, there's but, a motif going motif. on here. I think we all have. Fascinating. We all have our sweet spot. So yeah. all, we all have our wheelhouse. Now that would be a savory spot. Yeah, uh, good point. Who would know? <laughs> We're talking about the slime oh, or the Super right. Bowl. Have you tried this? <laughs> That's, that's a delicate. That's a very I think we all, yeah, savory. We slime all have tried, slime tried slime mold, isn't it? In hamburger. So you know, slime mold? When, when I was a child I've had growing up, mold. when I was a child growing up, oh, I, I had a morbid fascination for things that would bite and sting and envenomate you and eat you. But you, have arach- but you have arachnophobia. Yeah, you have for legendary example, arachnophobia. Terrified of spiders. Absolutely terrified. And so uh, it, you know, later on, I realized that I could I could put this 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 set of anxiety, this sort of complex anxiety disorder, uh, to profitable use and became an infectious disease specialist. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew you could get paid for knowing about ghoulish things? Know your enemy. <laughs> know your enemy. Anyway, so I, uh, I, I, one of the things I love about infectious disease is, is, is the immunology of infectious diseases. And one of the things I'm most interested in in, in immunology is macrophages. We, we talked about them a couple episodes Macrophages ago. are those things that eat up the- The white blood the, cells. Right. The diseases. Right. No. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about macrophages is that, that, that macrophage-like critters are-, are, are, are very common in the environment, amoebas, for example. And so they are very similar in many ways to macrophages, except that they're free living. And uh, uh, and so I'm curious about the behavior of single cell animals like, like free living amoebas. Are they animals? They're not plants. They're not plants. Okay, um, just checking. They don't photosynthesize. So yep. I guess they are send your, animals. And send, they are, you, send your corrections to yeah, so ID.com. I'm, I'm going to say they're, they're animals. They're single celled animals. But the interesting can you, about. Can you have them as pets? You could. There you go. Then they're animals. All you need is some some <laughs> some wadded up wet paper towels. Yes. Yeah. And they'll be very happy. Pretty boring pet. Boring pets in yeah. there. Well, they're very hard to train. They don't do tricks, but they, they do move. You don't need a pet sitter. They move. It's true. Now, the. the, the <laughs> The the free living amoebas oh, God. are like the sort of the the soil living scavengers that crawl around and eat bacteria. So they're doing very much what macrophages do, which is go and find bacteria and eat them. Now, when f- their food source becomes scarce, this is where it gets really interesting: is that the free living amoebas release chemical signals to attract each other, and they form a mass, and they become a multicellular <gasps> animal. Like like uh, what was that uh, like cartoon? Like yeah, the blob. The blob. The blob. It's, the blob. The blob. it's like the blob because again, this is Halloween themed. 
So we're thinking about more like a like one movies. of those transformer, not transformers. What were they? That they all came together and they made one giant transformer, like a giant Kim Jong Un robot. Oh please! Not exactly where I was going with that. But I don't think that sure. follows. Sure, if that helps you, very go for similar. It. When the food source gets low, they turn into a giant killer robot. So the macrophages, I assume the, the amoebas, come together yep. and form what's called a slime mold, which is this big ball. And, and and here we have some pictures of slime molds. Can, we can't do our, pictures our, on the radio. Our radio listeners can't see, but there's one that looks like cotton candy, except it's yellow. It oh, actually looks it. like those peeps. It looks a lot like oh, peeps. There is like look at peeps. That. There is the reason never to eat peeps. And this one's got so the, this, this should the be our charming Easter name theme show. The dog vomit slime mold. Oh, gross! That's what it's called. That's what it's called. That's what it's called. That's what it's called. It's oh, that particular nasty. species. And they move around. They're at like one point three five millimeters per second. So they're quite speedy. As what? as one point three five millimeters per second. second. That is fast for a blob that's moving around. And when so as they that was my half marathon time. They, as they they. You know, lose food. They start, and then the they acquire the ability to detect food scents. And so they the 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 slime mold multicellular organism is better able to find its food. And so it's a, an example of collectivism. Now it gets really interesting. Oh, you're one when of those. Listen starts, to this. I, I've heard about this. This you're is one really of those. interesting. Really cool. socialists. Huh? When when the water starts to dry up and it and like they're going to die because they have to be wet because they're slime molds. They have to be wet. Believe me, I know. They adopt an altruistic behavior and they form a fruiting body where they all climb together and they form like a like a, a tower um, where all the, 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 the amoebas at the bottom turn rigid, desiccate, and die, but create a rigid structure like a tube with so the living amoebas at the top, which then turn into spore-generating animals. It's like the Tower of Sauron. Oh. It, it's like the Tower of Sauron, right. <laughs> I don't know what that is. What's right. the Tower of Sauron? It's where Sauron's tower is. It's his tower. It Sauron was a guy from the, from the um, Wizard of Oz. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be more off. Follow the yellow brick elf. Flying orcs. That yep. kind of right, follow, the, follow the yellow dog vomit. Yep. <laughs> anyway, it's sort of amazing that this, this multicellular, these free-living animals become multicellular mutualistic, and then they become altruistic animals and sporulate. Into the environment. I just think it's so cool. That's it's, not what I had heard. Cool. I had heard that they have been able to actually detect memory really? in slime molds. Memory. <laughs> memory. They've been able to put them in a maze with some sort of an attractant and they, they will, will find their way. They will find their way and they will remember slime the ways mold. that don't work. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so slime molds, not to be underestimated. Wow. And did you know that you can cut them into multiple pieces and they will re-aggregate <laughs> just like the blob? Just like the blob. So cool. Uh, so cool. Wow. Happy Halloween. Okay. Uh, slime Whatever from Chris. All right, so mine's a mine's a short one, but it does also get to my one of some of my greatest fears. So as I, I've said on this podcast this many is like times, podcast therapy. This here. is podcast therapy for me. So I have all these. <laughs> just, we're not talking about abstracts now. I, okay, so are you guys? Would you guys say you're rule followers or rule breakers? No. <laughs> <laughs> Answers the question right there. Okay, I'm a rule follower, I would say, generally speaking, in my life. And I like to, I, I worry about, you know, what's going to happen when I don't follow the rules. Uh, and uh, so we, we in our professional lives, have to go out and raise money through writing grants. We have to submit these grant applications. How often do you read the instructions oh. for the grant application oh, you're submitting? Practically never. You don't hardly, read it. hardly ever. You just write the grant 
and right. you just you know submit it. Right. And so those those rules that say it's got to be exactly this many pages. Oh no no those 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 rules I follow. How 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 closely do you follow? How how well I measure the size of the margin. I yep. measure the font size. I yep. do all that stuff. Yeah, you but measure that's the, the only font thing. size. Uh oh! It sounds like I'm going to be trapped here. No, I was just I the you, one one of the ones that I don't probably pay enough attention to is font. So this was a, an article from uh, Nature News from 2015, October 29, 2015. The headline is "Grant Application Rejected Over Choice of Font." This is and this is the this is the fear of mine. So this is a uh a, a, a article about uh, a researcher. I won't uh, get into the name, but someone who's a paleontologist at Imperial College London announced on social media that her fellowship application had been thrown out for being in the wrong font. Wingdings. What? <laughs> wingding font. What's a wingding font? Oh, you don't know the wingding font? No, there's oh. such a thing as a wingding. Oh, absolutely, in word. Oh, it's it's awesome. It's little boxes and squigglies. It's like little little symbols, little faces. This wasn't wingding. This was Calibri. Oh, really? What? Rejected for using Calibri. That's she just like Helvetica. I... No, you got to use Times New Roman. What? Got to use Times New Roman. You're not an aerial guy? I like aerial no. and Helvetica. Well, no. Wow. You can fit more okay. in with Times New Roman. That's true. Well, apparently you can fit way too much in with Calibri, and that was the reason it was rejected. So uh, this was from the UK's Natural, Envir- National, the Natural Environmental Research Council, and they say it regularly rejects a small number of applica- applications for using the wrong font, uh, and apparently that that percentage is 4%. Wow. 4% of applications rejected from this particular body for using the wrong font. I always see that they Which, say there's a particular font you should use, and I don't pay enough attention to that. What about and the my like, problem is your I'm last ru- grant was <laughs> was in Calibri? I have no idea, but you know I'm panicked now, and I you know I this is this is my worst nightmare that it's going to come back, and I'm going to tell you guys that my grant got rejected because it was just too good. <laughs> when the real reason is right, it got rejected because I Improper used the wrong font. font, or my margins were too big. So there you go. So. All I can say is for, unlike what I thought, where you can get away with these small infractions, apparently you cannot oh, listen to you guys. Font police. Wow. The font police are yeah. out there. Christopher Gill likes CG Omega as his font of What's choice. What's a CG Omega? I have no idea. That's a real font? A real Did font. you invent it? Is are that what on? has your initials no, on it? that's what I use for my, my resume. I, I met someone at a party who makes fonts. Yeah, I've-, I've That was yeah, fantastic. That, it was a fascinating conversation. Really interesting, huh? Yeah, really cool. What do they do for fun? I, I, uh, I assume make- Wacky fonts? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Collect straws, drinking straws? Uh, from different kinds of drinking straws? I, I heard we were banning straws. Anyway, that is the end of our program. Oh, if goodness. you've got any feedback on this or any other episode you want to suggest a topic uh, for us to take on. Positive feedback only. You can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or tweet me at, at ProfMadFox or Chris at, at IDDocGill. Uh, Don's still down for yep. harassing various people. Uh, or you can find us blocked. at the Population Health Exchange website. It's www.pophealthyx.org. Uh, we want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. 